of 1 Samuel, page uh, 198. 1 Samuel, page 198. We're going to dive in this morning. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So um, at this point in the story of kind of God and his interaction with his people, the people of Israel... Um, God is in the process of looking for a new king. Um, he had, had rejected uh, King Saul, and so he sends uh, his prophet Samuel out on a search to anoint the next king. And he sends him to the city of Bethlehem and to the household of a man named Jesse. And Jesse had several sons, and so he starts kind of lining them up to see which one uh, is going to be chosen to be the next king. And as he continues to bring each one before him, uh, God just says, no, that's not him, that's not him. And then finally they're like, do you have any other kids? And they're like, yeah, our youngest uh, is David, and he's out tending the sheep right now. And they say, go and get him. So in chapter 16, we're going to look at verses 12 and 13 first. It says, so he sent... And had him brought in, he was ruddy, he with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him, he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Now that is a, <clears throat> a really important phrase, that the Spirit came upon David in power. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was only given to people, certain people, for certain tasks for a certain amount of time. It's not like what we experience with the Holy Spirit today, where when Jesus went up into heaven, he said, I'm going to send my spirit, and if you are, your life is surrendered to me, my Holy Spirit's going to live in you and, and be at home in you forever. Okay, so we have that access to the Spirit, that power in us all the time. Now, in the Old Testament, that wasn't the case. God would gift someone the power of that spirit, okay? So I want you to just hang on to that little piece of information. We're going to come back to that a little bit later today. So the last couple of times that I spoke uh, back in June, we looked at some specific psalms that were connected to actual stories and events that happened in David's life. So the event would happen, and he would write a, a song or a psalm about that. And as you recall, kind of the circumstances of his situation when we looked at those different uh, stories, after he was anointed to be the next king, um, he didn't become king right away. There was still another king, Saul, that was there. David was a teenager, so he had this process of learning and growing to go through. And he immediately, though, filled with the Spirit's power, went out and slayed Goliath. He went out and, and led uh, the people of Israel to many military victories to the point where King Saul... Uh, became pretty jealous of David. And as we looked at some of those stories, it was when Saul was trying to kill David. And so David was on the run, uh, living in the land of his enemies with kind of a small band of men who were loyal to him. But they were hiding out in caves, if you remember, on a couple different situations, really kind of just trapped in the back of a cave, hiding out, hoping in some way that Saul wouldn't find him and kill him, and really totally at the mercy of God to deliver him because he knew I don't have as many soldiers as Saul. I don't have the ability to beat him in victory. And God did preserve his life. And over the course of the next few years, if you continue to read the account, Saul and his sons eventually are killed uh, on the same day in a battle. And so at the age of 30, 
David finally gets anointed and crowned king of Israel, and he would reign uh, for 40 years. And the early years of David's kingship were marked by, again, great military success, expanding uh, the empire and the territory. God's hand was certainly on David. The Holy Spirit that he had gained was, you know, helping him to lead his people pretty triumphantly. And it seemed like everything was kind of going David's way. Now, I want you to flip your Bibles over to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, page 398. And if we just look at the introduction, it says, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So that doesn't sound so good. Thank you. (laughs) That's putting it lightly, right? So I want you to hold your finger there, okay, because we're going to come back to that. And I want you to flip back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. It's page 218. 2 Samuel chapter 12. So at kind of the height of his success and power, we see this event that really kind of unfolds in chapter 11. And many of you are familiar with the story. David is, is uh, his men are away at war. He's up on his roof. He notices his neighbor lady Bathsheba who looks really good and decides to have an affair with her, ends up, she becomes pregnant. Her husband, Uriah, is one of David's soldiers. He's off at battle, so David starts conspiring to figure out, how am I going to get myself out of this situation? So he brings Uriah home, hoping that he would sleep with his wife and maybe that he would think that that was his child. Well, the plan doesn't work out because Uriah is a man of integrity and he's thinking to himself, you know what, my fellow soldiers aren't getting to come home like me. And be with their wife. And so he just sleeps outside on the ground. And uh, so that didn't work. And so David keeps figuring out, what am I going to do? And eventually decides, I've just got to get rid of this guy. And so he has his military commander put Uriah up on the front lines, has him killed. And so that now he looks like the nice guy kind of taking in this widow uh, and raising her child. So let's take a look at um, chapter 11 Right there at the end, 26 and 27, it says, When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. One commentator that I read said that might be the most understated statement in the Bible. God was really mad. So let's look and see how God handles this, starting in chapter 12. It says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he had done such a a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. 
This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave, you your master's house to, gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what was evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite and the sword and took his, with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despise me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, they will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. Well, there are a lot of different things that we're going to talk about today, but kind of the first question that I want to begin with is how do we handle it when we are confronted by our, with our own sin? How do we handle the Nathans in our life? When people come to us and point out our flaws, whether it be your spouse, a friend, uh, whoever it might be, what, what's your first reaction generally? Is it to, to get defensive? Is it to become angry? To begin uh, justifying and trying to figure out ways to kind of excuse your actions to get you off the hook, get them off out of your face? And if your reaction is one of those things, have you ever asked yourself the question, why? Why do I get defensive? Why do I try to slough it off like it's not that big of a deal? Because there's probably something there that we need to examine. Or do we receive it as a loving rebuke from the Lord? Because David received it. And that reaction charted the course of the future actions that we see playing out in his response in Psalm 51. So let's turn back there. So because David acknowledged his sin, he then sat down and wrote <clears throat> this psalm. We're going to look at the first five verses first. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire, I'm sorry, stop right there, do verse 5. So one of the first things that I noticed when I read the beginning of this psalm is that David is speaking um, in a way in which he believes that he is going to be forgiven for uh, these pretty horrible acts. At least most of us would look at these situations and say, wow, man, that's, that's pretty bad. So that's really no small feat just to begin with, that he believes in a God who could forgive him of those things. And where does he get that confidence in God's mercy? 
Well, as an Israelite, he knew the scripture, and so he knew what God said about himself in the book of Exodus, chapter 34. And this is right after God has given Moses the Ten Commandments, and this is what happens next. It says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generations. So David is banking on God being true to his word. And Psalm 51 is a, is a great message, a model for confession. And, and David begins this psalm by reminding himself and reminding God of who God says he is, what his nature is. And so he kind of launches into this and he says, you know, God, based on what I know about Exodus 34 as well, you say that you are compassionate and you are gracious and you are slow to anger and you are abounding in love and faithfulness and I'm banking on that being true here. And if it's true, then I believe that you can take this messed up situation that I've gotten myself into and this messed up heart of mine and that you can turn it around and redeem it for something good. In verse 1 he says, because of your mercy, your love, and your compassion, because those things are true, I want you to blot out, wash away, and cleanse me. Basically he's coming to God and saying, I'm busted. <laughs> I'm not making any excuses here. I realize that, that I was in the wrong. He says, my transgressions, plural, I know that my sins are multiple, which is why he says, wash away all of my iniquity. Not just my actions in this particular situation, but I want you to wash away the very heart that fueled those desires to begin with that I know is capable of other things if it's not addressed. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. You see, David realized that this wasn't just a social sin situation where you know, I know that I've wronged somebody, and so then I just need to make things right with that person. He understands that, that this is a theological problem, that his actions are primarily against God and God's covenant nature. Walter Brueggemann uh, wrote a commentary on the Psalms, and this is what he said about Psalm 51. He says, for the sin of that episode is not finally sexual violation against Bathsheba or murder against Uriah. But it is a sin of pride against God, of imagining that one is autonomous and can live one's life without reference to God and God's commandments. The sin is thinking the commandments can somehow be superseded. So at the root of David's actions that fueled all this was this prideful spirit in him that said, hey, you know what? I'm the king, and I can do whatever I want, and I, I, I deserve this, this pleasure, and I've seen a lot of people over the course of being a pastor here for the last few years who um, kind of breeze through the opportunity for real confession. And primarily the reason why they do that is because for whatever re reason, the people that they've offended um, have been quick to forgive them and, and just kind of want to move on. They don't really want to deal with the pain. They just want the relationship to be okay again. 
And so the person that's done the offending kind of thinks, well, man, if they're good with it, then things must be good. Let's just, let's move on, right? Let's move forward. What they fail to understand is that their sin was primarily against a holy and just God. And the process of reconciliation with him may require a much deeper look at our actions and an accounting for those things. Starting in verse 6, we see a shift in David's processing. So I want you to think about um, what is it that David is desiring that will happen in this next section. We're going to look at 6 through 12. He says, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So what is it that David is desiring in the second section? In the first section, he's kind of like taking responsibility for his actions, admitting his fault. What do you think he's really trying to get at here in this middle section? What is he desiring that God would do? What's that? Okay, yeah, forgive him. What else? Restoration. Restoration, okay. What else? What's that? Okay. What does he ask for in verse 10? Create in me a clean heart. He wants change. See, David pleads for more than just forgiveness. He's pleading for renewal. He's committed to being changed by God. He's saying, you know what? I don't ever want to get back to that place where I was so willing to offend you and to offend others. I don't want to make that same mistake again. And so does our repentance end with just a statement of how sorry we are? Or are we really willing to examine the depth of corruption in our heart that fueled the desire that led to those actions to begin with? Are we really committed to change? Change begins when we realize that we need to be transformed, but that we can't do it on our own. Change begins with a prayer that says, Lord, do in me what I cannot do myself. Do we really believe that? Or in our pride do we think that change is really primarily about our ability to just have better self-control next time? Our ability to have more self-discipline? 
well, I'm just not going to do that anymore. I'm going to be better than that. Do we say, I've got to stop gossiping or being critical or judgmental or selfish or prideful, but never get to the point where we say, Lord, I can't do it without you. Because if we have that first perspective, then we're really only dealing with the behavior. Because all of us can change our behavior. We can, we can get enough self-will up to say, you know what, I'm just going to be better at doing this. I'm just going to you know, not do that as much. We can see progress if we put our mind to it. But we can't get down to the heart level and change our heart. That is a work of the Spirit of God that only He can do. And so any change that's done in just our own strength is just going to be surface level, and it's not going to last. And there's several other things that aren't going to be possible that we're going to learn as we go on here. So verse 6, as he started off in this section, reminds us of the depth of honesty that God desires. He says, God, you desire truth in the innermost parts, the very core of who we are, down that deep. You want to see your truth taken hold of by us. Look at the actions that David asks of God in verses 7 through 12 that he knows have to happen if change is going to happen. He says, God, you're going to need to cleanse me, wash me, blot out, create, renew, cast not, take not, restore, and grant. And so in many different images and words, David asked God to give him the things that he knows will make new life possible. You see, David understood that God wanted to do a deeper work than just forgiving him. He wanted to change him from the inside out so that in the future when he faced similar circumstances, he wouldn't be so quick to be willing to offend God and others. So one of the questions for us today is, is what, what's our vision for the depth of healing that God wants to bring us? What's our vision for the depth of healing that God wants to bring us? What's verse 11 all about? Remember when we read about God granting David the spirit? The very next verse, if we flip back to 1 Samuel 16, you don't have to do it, I'll just tell you what it is. 1 Samuel 16, 14 says this, Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. So at the moment that David receives a, a gift of the spirit, God removes the spirit from Saul. And so David, as he served under Saul in his court, and it was a military commander for him, he saw the devastating effects in Saul's life of the absence of the spirit. He saw him just kind of progressively over the years become more evil and more evil. And David didn't want to have anything to do with that. And so he comes to God and he begs him. You see it in verses 11 and 12. Lord, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Please, if change is going to happen in me, I know that I'm going to need your spirit's power in order to see that come about. I can't do it on my own. And so he's asking for the right things, for one. He realizes where his help needs to come from. So section one of the psalm deals with the acknowledgement of sin. Section two deals with the commitment to change. Let's see what the focus of the last section is. We're going to go through verse 17 today. Starting in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways, 
and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I love verse 13. <clears throat> David says, God, if you will forgive me, if you will change me, then I will take the painful situations and circumstances of my life and I will teach other people how to live, how to avoid some of the things that I've gotten myself into. He understood that forgiveness and grace are gifts to be shared with other people. You see, when God heals us, he always gives us more than we need so that then we can pass on that healing to other people in our life who we come across who may have had similar situations and struggles and temptations so that we can share with them and give away what was given to us to get us through those times. And what does David believe will happen? He says that when he teaches people God's ways, they will turn back to him. You see, he believes in the power and the testimony of a changed life. That when you share your story with others and what God has done and how he's healed you, that people's hearts will turn back to him as a result of that. Do you see how this process is so much deeper than just saying you're sorry and moving on? Which is kind of where a lot of us stop, where I do. Not only do we confess, but we're also changed and we're given the opportunity to have a ministry to other people to teach them what we've learned and see change in them as well. I also noticed as I read this, this kind of shift in this last section, it seems like David believes that the forgiveness and the grace has been granted to him. He, he's, he's talking like God has, has forgiven and healed him. Richard Foster describes God's heart like this. You can put that quote up there. He says, love, not anger, brought Jesus to the cross. Golgotha, which was the hill that Jesus was crucified on, came as a result of God's desire to forgive, not his reluctance. Jesus knew that by his vicarious suffering, he could actually absorb all the evil of humanity and so heal it, forgive it, redeem it. You see, we serve a God who is eager to forgive and eager to redeem and restore and we see a picture of that in Luke chapter 15. You guys have probably read about the story of the prodigal son. And it says the father, while the son was still a long way off, but he knew that his son was coming back to him, coming home, humbled. It says the father pulled up his robe and ran out to greet the son, to embrace him and welcome him home. That's the kind of God that we are coming to when we come to him humbly confessing, taking responsibility for our actions and our sin, a God eager to forgive, but also eager to transform, and a God who isn't just interested in surface-level repentance so that we can feel better about ourselves. But longs to see us healed at the heart level so that our healing can be used to impact other people. In verse 17, for me, is the money verse. 
of this psalm. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You see, humility is what God desires. He doesn't want our hollow apologies or actions done to kind of please him and get back in good graces with him. One commentator said that God wants a dismantled self. He defined it like this. He said, the dismantled, this dismantled self characterized in verse 17 requires a shattering of one's spirit and the brokenness of one's heart. You see, the problem is for those of us that kind of like to control our lives and our emotions and our circumstances, the idea of being dismantled means a complete surrender of control. And so we resist that because it feels really risky and scary and humbling. Personally, as I looked at this, this is what my problem is, is that I'm too proud to allow my spirit to be shattered by the weight of my sin. And I really want to believe that my sin just isn't really that bad and that the people that I've offended aren't really that hurt by what I've done. And so I grant myself quick forgiveness and often I resist that deep searching that would bring truth to the innermost parts of my heart. And so the depth of change in me is stunted by my pride. And my stories of healing lack the ultimate power and the ultimate benefit for others that I think God probably would love to use me to do. Other people that I know wallow under the weight of their sin to the point where they can't believe that God would ever forgive them or that he could ever be that merciful and kind to them. They beat themselves up and think that change is never going to be possible. And as a result, they rarely experience healing and they rarely have stories of victory in their life to share with other people. Oswald Chambers, who writes My Utmost for His Highest, a daily devotional, said this this week on July 3rd. He says, when I come into the very presence of God, I do not realize that I am a sinner in an indefinite sense, but I suddenly realize and the focus of my attention is directed toward the concentration of sin in a particular area of my life. A person will easily say, oh yes, I know that I'm a sinner. But when he comes into the presence of God, he cannot get away with such a broad and indefinite statement. Our conviction is focused on our specific sin and we realize what we really are. This is always a sign that a person is in the presence of God. There is never any vague sense of sin, but a focusing on the concentration of sin in some specific personal area of life. God begins by convicting us of the very thing to which his spirit has directed our mind's attention. I'll put this last part up on the screen for you. If we will surrender... Submitting to his conviction of that particular sin, he will lead us down to where he can reveal the vast underlying nature of sin. That is the way God always deals with us when we are consciously aware of his presence.
what he's saying is that God wants to get to the root of it, (laughs) the vast underlying desires that are fueling our actions on the surface level. He wants to do more than just deal with the fact that we were rude or selfish or, you know, whatever. He wants us to look and understand and say, well, why? Why am I doing that? What's fueling that? That's where he wants to heal at that kind of level. But we can only get there when we take the time to be in his presence. See, David's life wasn't defined by his mistakes. We all make mistakes. Rather, David's life was defined by how he handled his life when his sin was brought to his attention, when he was confronted with that. It was defined by his understanding of whom he had offended, his desire to change, and his desire to share that healing with other people. I know what's true about me is that I will set aside all kinds of time to gain more knowledge about God. I love to learn. I I love to read, and I'll read books, and I like to go to conferences and to hear new ideas, and I will create lots of time for that kind of stuff in my life. But I don't create much time to, to really examine my life and go through processes of true, what I would call true repentance with God. That's not much fun, (laughs) to be honest with you. And there's something wrong with that in me. And so today, you can join me on this journey this week. Um, On the inside of your pews, there's some cards. If you want to write on here, you can write on your program. I've got some questions for you that I'd just like you to write down and take with you today. I don't think you're going to get to the bottom of this stuff this morning. What sinful situation are you aware of right now in your life? And how have you violated God? What do you know is true about God's heart towards you in the midst of your sin? What would true repentance on your part look like? And what do you need him to provide to make change possible? So take a, just a couple minutes just to write those things down.
See, at any point along the way, we can short-circuit God's ultimate desire. We can start with the very beginning by not even acknowledging that we have a problem. Or we can enter into the process and we can repent and receive forgiveness and just kind of stop there. Or we can repent and actually ask God to change us and change our heart. And we could see some results in that. And we can stop the process there. Or we can receive forgiveness, ask for change, change through the power of God's Spirit, and also have a ministry to share the healing that we've received with others and see our healing be a blessing to other people. But to get to that point requires time and solitude and humility on our part. So my desire for you, for myself, is that we would press through to God's best for all of us. So as we spend time this morning in silence uh, before God, maybe there's a particular area that you know that you're just not being obedient in in your life right now. Maybe God's been stirring it up. You've been ruminating on it for a while in your life, and this sermon has kind of brought it home for you. Uh, Spend some time talking with him about that. We're reminded as we come to the table today, coming forward and receiving communion is an action of our body and of our will that acknowledges, God, I can't change on my own. I can't forgive myself. (laughs) I need your forgiveness. You're the one that I've offended. I need your forgiveness. I need your power to change me. I need your help. I need your blessing. Then use that for other people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for this story of David, a man who experienced some incredible highs and devastating lows in his life, but all along the way, God, his heart was able to turn back to you, able to receive that rebuking that a loving father is always going to give children that he cares about. So thank you for David's model of repentance and forgiveness and confession and healing and restoration. God, we need that in our own lives. God, I pray that we would see things through to the ultimate end that you have for us. So hear our prayers this morning as we come before you in silence and just speak to you and and listen what you have to say to us.